0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. Tom Peters of the Monk's Cafe on the show. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Levy. How are you?
0: Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: So you really helped change the Philadelphia beer scene and maybe the beer scene in the United States, but what happened to get you there? I mean, what was the original experience with beer?
1: You know, if I were in Europe, it would be totally legal for me to have a beer at 14, but since I was born here in the States, uh, my first beer was at 14 out of my grandfather's beer refrigerator, and I had a Dortmunder Union. That set the Plain field for me that was the pitch and i really love that beer as a special place in my heart still
0: so was he kind of a beer person that he had that around
1: uh yeah he's an old railroader his uh his family came from northeastern netherlands so really close to germany yeah and uh, they they all drank beer it's above the, the grape line so uh They all drank beer up there.
0: Oh, I get it. So they couldn't grow grapes for wine, so they would drink beer. Yes. And he had some in the fridge, and every so often you would be by his house.
1: I would go by and mow the lawn, one of those old-timey rotary reel mowers. Thank goodness it was a small yard. And uh, I'd do it maybe once every other week. And then I would, uh, maybe once every other month, I'd sneak a beer on a really hot day. And he had so much beer there, he never... At least he didn't. <laughs> I he never called he... you on it. <laughs> I never got caught. I'll put it that way.
0: So, where did that take you? I mean, did you get involved right away with restaurants and beer, or was it?
1: I had a lot of different careers. I sold audio equipment, uh, video equipment, uh, worked for PennDOT, paving roads, plowing roads, worked in law offices, uh, got a paralegal degree. You know, just uh, I was in the army. So I did a lot of different things, uh, but I used to love to go out to eat, and I loved to go out to a bar, and I would talk them into carrying a good beer, and that would be my local bar. As long as they had one good beer, I'd be happy. How did you first get involved with restaurants? I had a, a local restaurant that I patronized, i say maybe two or three times a week, and I heard the owners talking to the server that they were short a uh, server that night, And I ate there so often, I felt I knew the menu. I could describe it. Uh, It was a verbal menu. And I said, I'd love to help you out. And I did. And the first day I waited tables, I said, this is what I want to do. And I gave my notice uh, at the retail store the next day.
0: You found it pretty easy.
1: I really like people. And uh, I like giving them good things. And I also like... Knowing how well I did immediately, based upon the tip, you know, if you're working at a law firm, you're writing a friends of the court brief. You, it could take years before you know how you did, and uh, it, it was just great to know with every guest how well they took to you and what you know, whether or not they had a great time or not.
0: And you don't have to impanel a jury or anything, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> no voir dire, right? <laughs>
0: And so how was uh, how did it go at the restaurant? I mean, how long were you there?
1: I worked there for uh, just part-time because I already had regular servers, but I went around and I found a job uh, soon thereafter. And uh, I, I'd say within a week, I had a, like three job offers. And I, I wanted to be a server. I wanted to master that task. And then I... Uh, overstated my qualifications to be a bartender. Other than being at a bar, I I made it seem as if I were on the opposite side of the bar than the consumer side. So <laughs> I was a bartender for a couple of years, and then, they're
0: like, "Well, this guy's got a lot of experience
1: <laughs> <laughs> since he was 14. <laughs> uh, yeah, That you know that I was working at a, a restaurant and I wanted to learn how to cook. That fascinated me so. I learned how to prep and how to work a line, you know, a slow line, a busy line. And I learned how to bake and do some pastries and, you know, I hosted, I volunteered to host. So I learned all these things on my own without being paid for it, like an internship, basically.
0: It was fun for you to learn these new tasks. Oh, it's great. Get it right.
1: it served me well in the long run when I opened my own restaurant.
0: But did you know you were going to do that from the beginning?
1: I did not. I just, you know, the cooks looked like they had some skill that I did not possess, and I wanted to acquire that skill.
0: And where did Belgian beer enter the picture?
1: My girlfriend at the time and I went, we're going to go visit Paris, and I had never been to Europe before. So it was my very first passport in 1984, but it was cheaper to fly. Uh, to Brussels on People's Express. It was $99 each way. We landed in Brussels. We had a few hours to kill, and we had to take a train anyway to Paris. And uh, I had to slake my thirst. I was a thirsty guy. And uh, we went into a neighborhood cafe right near the Grand Place, and uh, I ordered a Heineken because I heard Heineken was really good there.
0: It was better but, in Europe then
1: yeah better in Europe, it's close to the source, and I always felt that the beer was skunky uh when I had it, and part of it is you know u v light struck with the green bottles, um, which is insane that a company that large still does that and i I order it and he pours it, and I think I whisper very quietly to my girlfriend, and I say, "This sucks just as bad as it does in America." And then I see the bartender's head whip around. And I thought, geez, I'm in country less than an hour and I'm already the ugly American. And uh, so he he laughs. He goes, no, it's not a good beer. Would you like a real beer? And sure, I'm always up for a challenge. So he poured a Duval and having tended bar for several years by that time. I thought this dude does not know how to pour beer, and if you've ever seen a duval, it's a huge goblet of this golden bubbly elixir, but the, it's a i think twelve point seven or eleven point two ounce bottle, but it's has to be a twenty ounce glass, and the remainder of the glass, a good three inches of it is supposed to be head, you know, so you can get the release the aromas of the you know, the steering goldings and sauce hops, all those wonderful aromas and black peppery, black peppercorn notes. And uh, I'm thinking the dude doesn't know how to pour a beer because I've never seen a beer poured like that. But he showed me how to drink it. You tilt the glass, the bottom of the glass up, and the liquid comes right to your lips. And I was like, wow, that's, it was an epiphany. And then he, Served an Orval from the Travis Monastery, and then a uh, Chimay Blue, and each each one, he put a different coaster down, each one came in a unique glass, and I was just totally blown away. But of course, I drank them like they were Dab and Dortmund or Unions, and they're two or three times the alcohol. And when I stand up to hit the loo, I found that somebody stole my legs. (laughs) I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so we ended up staying in, in uh, Brussels for a couple of days. And I just fell in love with it. The-
0: You're like, I can't get out of this bar stool for like a
1: while. <laughs> you better extend the hotel. Yeah, somebody super glued me to the chair. <laughs> like another college prank. Uh, it, it, and it was, the whole experience was something. I never thought of Belgium as a tourist destination. But, you know, I, I had chocolate. I had Home frites, uh, you know, they're not French fries, they're Belgian fries. <laughs> they invented it. And, uh, you know, they had mayonnaise with the French fries. I'm like, what the heck is up with that? And uh, cuisine, it, it was amazing. And I, I really fell in love with uh, Belgium and in just a matter of a couple of days. I was like, this is something I would like to bring to America. And
0: originally it was just a place you ended up because you wanted a cheaper flight to Paris.
1: Yeah, it's was a cheapskate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so what happened next? I mean, you come back to the States. and
1: Yeah, I come back a few weeks later and I'm standing bar and waiting tables at a Cajun restaurant, Cafe Nola. And I go to Bill Curry and Judy D. Vicaris who owned the restaurant that I present a plan to bring in a couple of good beers. And they think the beers are too expensive. Like, no one's going to purchase this beer. 750 milliliter bottle, like the consumer is going to pay $8 for that. So I turned that argument on its head. It's like, well, tell me one $8 bottle of wine you would be willing to sell in your restaurant. And, you know, it's going to be crap. Uh, But here, you can have one of the best beers in the world. So they said, okay. And, uh, I got Eddie Friedland was a beer distributor. He dropped off a case, and he dropped off a case of glasses. And I talked the first guest into uh, hand-selling it, uh, the bottle of Chimay. And other people are coming in and saying, like, what's that? What's that? What's that? And, and every
0: time someone ordered a Heineken, you're like, <laughs> you want to try a real beer? <laughs>
1: But I did warn them that it's higher in alcohol. So, But they were totally blown away. You guys
0: aren't doing anything for the next couple of days, are you? <laughs> you might need to book a longer hotel room.
1: You can just sleep on the grate out front. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was really cool to uh, watch people's eyes light up. They just never thought of beer in that way. They they could have been wine snobs, but beer, you know, it's like, oh, I've tried everything. And all they've tried were light american lagers it's like i tried have... everything coors bud miller <laughs> and the light yeah heineken yeah. becks you know the same style and i to this day i occasionally get a wine person in and they think they've tried everything that they don't like beer but i have you're never... looking
0: at me right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over the microphone you're like...
1: i'm looking at you closely <laughs> i'm not gonna say his name <laughs> But I, I love, you know, I, I ask uh, people who are you know, what, what do they drink? You know, do they like groans? Do they like ports? Do they not drink wine? Do they drink whiskey? Do they drink American whiskey or Scotch whiskey? You know, what do they drink? I can find something that'll hint at, at least hint at that flavor profile, if not match it or exceed it.
0: That's interesting. So you take people's wine taste and you translate it into what might work for them for a beer. Interest. Sure.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of barrel-aged beers out there, especially now. Sometimes too many. <laughs> I don't think I need another coffee bourbon aged imperial stout for the rest of my life because some of them have too much vanilla character and you know, I I, I like nuanced things like when I drink wine, I like things with many layers of flavor and nuances and that's the way i like beer too and and people will go oh well that's delicious but that's not really beer and and i had to say that is really beer all that other post prohibition stuff is not beer
0: oh so you see a division in the beer production in this country that kind of dates to prohibition and
1: oh yeah bath bathtub beers you know bathtub gin um Beer didn't travel well. So getting beers from England and Germany, eh, they were a little DOA when they got here. Canadian beers would be smuggled in, but they weren't much better than the American beers. But once people got used to drinking bathtub beer, that's where their taste stayed. And uh, there's, there were a few outposts that still held on, like uh, uh India Pale Ale, that they made in aged oak barrels for twenty or thirty years. That it's like Valentine makes this. It's an incredible experience to taste something like that. And then Anchor Brewing making a a steam beer and Fritz Maytag saving that style of beer. And then Jack McAuliffe and all these guys out in California. Ken Grossman. They all started reviving these beers that were around before prohibition and and of course nowadays people are there's no limits on what they can do they can just throw anything in uh, you know eye of newt
0: <laughs> but what people were doing actually is kind of like what's happened more recently in cocktails which is that they were looking at pre-prohibition recipes for beer making
1: yeah well exactly and people had always used indigenous ingredients to make whatever alcoholic beverage. The oldest known written recipe for beer is the Hymn to Nankasi. And that's right here in University of Pennsylvania, Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And uh, Solomon Katz, Dr. Solomon Katz, translated that, and Patrick McGovern translated that. Uh, I don't know the language. It's not Sanskrit or whatever it was, but it was a, the priestess Ninkasi, who was the goddess of beer. And they used dates and things that were indigenous, and that's how they got their fermentable sugars and uh, used the ambient yeast to ferment those sugars into CO2 and alcohol.
0: That maybe that was the one that was written in the drunken script.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: So back to the Cajun restaurant, I mean, what started to happen over time?
1: Oh, well, that first night I realized I made a huge mistake because I kept selling the beer, and then at 2 o'clock in the morning I'm ready to have a beer, and I sold all 12 of the bottles.
0: Of a super rare case of beer.
1: (laughs) I will never make that mistake again. But we set one aside for Tom. It's uh, Customer
0: number one here.
1: That's right. You know, the whiskey you have, the angel's share. I guess mine would be the devil's share. I don't know. (laughs) I'd set mine aside um, it could have been 750 a bottle, but Tom needed his <laughs> his cut, so it had to be eight a bottle. It's the Vig, it's yeah, the, the Vig. Vig. Yeah,
0: Vig starts running on anything Belgian.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, you know, I got another one, and then another one, and then those uh, Bill and Judy entrusted me enough to come up to another restaurant where they were losing money to see if I could turn it around, and I you you like it, one of
0: those TV shows? Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: It was a longer period. It wasn't <laughs> like an eight hour show. And we didn't have the budget to do like, you know, design and lighting and all that. But I just wanted to up the quality control, get a more welcoming staff to treat our guests better. And I wanted to establish a beer program. And I did. I established a serious beer program. And then I got rid of all the mass produced beers. We had none, and uh, I'd make people think about what they were drinking.
0: So you became sort of a destination for high quality beers.
1: Yeah, and uh, surprisingly enough, that people would come from different countries to go there to taste beer. I heard you have Cantine Rosada Gambrinas here. I was like, how the heck did you find that out? But somebody would write an article, like uh, uh, the f- famous beer writer Michael Jackson.
0: Um, Not to be confused with the singer.
1: That's right. He didn't. He didn't wear one glove. He wore one typewriter.
0: (laughs) He did write a lot of books. I remember. Yeah, Uh, yeah, whiskey
1: books. And uh, uh, who's the gentleman who does the wine? Is Hugh Johnson? Is it? Yeah. So he, Michael, was sort of the the beer version of that. He had a pocket guide of styles and breweries and places you can go find them and enjoy them. So it was sort of like the Hugh Johnson of uh, beer world.
0: And he had stopped by and seen what you were doing.
1: I don't know if he came in by happenstance or somebody sent him in, but, uh, you know, he and I just sat around and we just tasted through all these beers. And and, uh, so not knowing the, the palate that he has, I'm going to wax on poetically about the beer. I'm pouring it in the glass. Just right. I'm holding it up to the light. I'm describing to Michael Jackson the color of the beer and the, you know, the the foam and the aromas and the taste. And, and, you know, and I'm really, I think I'm I'm going to wow this dude. And and he goes, yeah, they've been doing that for a few hundred years. And the family, you know, if you go see the terroir, and he talks about the family history. And I think, geez, I'm such an idiot. You know, like he's, You know, I thought just my immediate sensory perceptions of uh, whatever I'm drinking would tell me the whole story. And it's just a small portion of the story that I'm learning. It's like you have to go meet the brewer or go to the brewery or both, ideally, and then you know why the beer tastes the way it tastes.
0: You're like that person when you go out for dinner and they taste the soup and they go, I think there's tarragon on this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) As opposed to like the person in the back of the kitchen being like, does this recipe call for tarragon? (laughs) You know, you were like, it was like a detective novel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You were trying to figure it out from the dead body working back. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Without the surveillance film. What
0: was Michael Jackson like? Because uh, he's passed away since.
1: Yeah, he passed away a few years ago, and uh, I, and I still can hear his voice. And he just—he was such a proponent of beer from around the world, uh, beer from Belgium in particular, uh, because it was, pun intended, an untapped source of beer. Everybody thought of Germany and England as the, the highlights of beer, and he talked about the all these wild and crazy. Families that just, you know, they're farmers. They just, ah oh, we have some oats. Let's throw some oats in there. Uh, barley, of course we're going to use barley. Some wheat. Uh, we don't have any yeast, so let's just let it sit out, see what happens. You know, it's it was really cool. And, and in Germany, you had to go by the Reinheitsgebot, which is the German purity laws. You know, water, yeast, barley, and hops, that was it. And in Belgium, they just used whatever the hell they wanted to. <laughs> so it made for a more interesting beer. More variety. More. Oh, yeah, just all over the place. You know, it's like, oh, there's some sour cherries growing outside. Let me throw those in a barrel with this beer and extract the Amadie flavor from the pits. Because, you know, the acidity of the beer would macerate the entire, you know, the stem, the skin, the meat, and the pits. And then they would just strain it and put it in bottles, and it would be fabulous.
0: And maybe a little more reflective of specifically where it was grown. Like, this is the place that grows
1: cherries. Right. Scarbex, you know, and outside of Brussels. That's where those cherries came from.
0: Because, I mean, wheat's all over the world, but cherries is not as common,
1: right? Right. And, you know, dates, Mesopotamia area. And, you know, there's people in Scandinavia that use pine needles and... Bog Myrtle and the uh, the Tommy Arthur in Southern California does Gift of the Magi, and he puts myrrh into it. I just love saying myrrh. This has myrrh. <laughs> so you know, people have traditions, and then they, uh, in America, we adopt traditions from other places, but we put our own stamp on it, and. Soon before Michael died, he felt that the United States had the most vibrant beer scene in the world. And in particular, he thought Philadelphia was the best beer city he had ever visited anywhere in the world. Because of the diversity of what we have.
0: And you were a little early in that movement. I mean, who else was around doing stuff when you were doing stuff?
1: Uh, there was Chris Morris at the Kyber Pass and Jim Anderson at the I think it was called the Green Street Cafe. And then Eddie Freeland was the importer who would just, you'd ask him for something, he, he'd go get it. and so, so he
0: was really crucial for the infrastructure, bringing yeah, it all in. Yeah.
1: But back in the old days, you used to be able to, I, I'd go to Belgium and say Chris from Le Chouf would give me a keg, a little you know 20-liter keg of beer. I could take that on his carry-on luggage back in the old days, throw it in the overhead bin nobody said anything but you know post 911 everything's changed and uh the spurt of growth of all the uh breweries so now everything has to be registered but back in the old days you just you know you would just bring beer back and share it and give it and taste it now if if i have anything that's not registered i i charge uh, people make a donation to a charity And then I give them a beer. And uh, so I'm able to raise a lot of uh, money for charity that way. If I have something really cool, very coveted, um, you know, one of the white whales of uh, beer world.
0: But you and Michael hung out and spent some time.
1: Yeah, we had dinner many times. And uh, we would bump into each other, you know, in Belgium and in England, uh, Germany, Copenhagen, and, of course, Denver for the Great American Beer Festival, you know, he was always come and just hang out with us. You know, he just he, I miss him so much.
0: So did he encourage you to travel a little bit? Because it sounds like when he says, oh, this comes from a specific place and this is the family that does it, that that kind of made an impact on you.
1: It made a huge impact on me. That's what started my travels. And I, I got to Belgium minimum two or three times a year, sometimes as many as five. And then I, you know, go to the Netherlands and Germany, Scandinavia, of course, and all over this country. You know, I've had the privilege of helping brew beers in California, Delaware, Maine, uh, Brussels. I blend up my own Cantillon, you know, Bode Grave in the Netherlands, at De Molen. So I've been very, very lucky. I've been very blessed to be able to... Uh, Count these brewers as my friends.
0: So it seems obvious that there's been a lot of change in American consumption, but has there been changes in Belgian production? You know, you visit a lot. Has the scene in Belgium changed at all?
1: Just like in America, there are a lot of larger breweries buying up smaller breweries, sometimes to the betterment of the smaller brewery, and sometimes not. But there are more microbreweries popping up all the time. And it's like, oh, uh, did you hear about such-and-such, such? Jean-Jane Jardinelle? It's like, I never heard of it. Then he go visit. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so good. And then you go to Browery uh, Cazot, and uh, he gets the wort going. It's boiling. He runs over and picks elderflowers in a field right across the street from the brewery. He throws it in the brew kettle instead of hops, and it's this ethereal saison style of beer with uh, a distinct flower aroma and flavor. It's it's pretty cool.
0: (laughs) Because not knowing much about it, I mean, my image of Belgian beer has a lot to do with religious orders and maybe people who don't talk and they sort of dress up like friar talk and maybe they make beer. (laughs) I mean, but what's the reality? I mean, what's the scene actually like?
1: I think in Belgium there were six Trappist monasteries uh, and they sort of have a vow of silence. They don't talk just to hear their own voice, but they do talk. But at mealtime, they don't talk. And at prayer time, they don't talk. But if you go talk to them about fear, you can't get them to shut up.
0: (laughs) (coughs) You're like, I haven't talked all day. I got to get it all in.
1: (laughs) How much time you got? (laughs) But it's, it's really cool to see how these, the integrity of the brews that they make. Orval makes one beer, and that's it. And they make a petite version, which is sort of, they just water it down for a cafe up the street. That's the only place that serves it, and that's what the monks drink. It's a lower version. But they make one beer, and they make it to perfection. And Rocher makes three versions of the same style of beer. And you don't see a whole lot of innovation going on there because it's, it's more about tradition. You know, this is how we honor our God and we promote, uh, like, say, they have orphanages in Africa and schools in Africa, and all the extra profit that doesn't go to maintenance of the monastery grounds goes to, to educate and house People in Africa. So they use, they keep no profits for themselves. That all goes to benefit other people, people in need. And all the Travis Monasteries do that.
0: And that was probably an inspiration for yourself because you do a lot of charity work.
1: Yeah, it's a part of it. Yeah. And I've, uh, you know, I've met people who've been really touched by, uh, you know, illness, uh, you know, like Alex's Lemonade Stand. I, try to raise at least It started out at five thousand dollars and and now we're up to twenty five thousand dollars uh in a four maybe a five hour period i i, I shake people down for 25 grand <laughs> i pummel them give give me your wallet give me every penny you have but i entice them to uh, do the right thing i do cash only Because speaking of the vig we mentioned earlier, I don't want to pay the credit card vig on it, so I just get cash, and if some and I charge fifteen dollars for a very small portion, uh, because I want as many fifteen dollar portions as I can get. Somebody throws a twenty in the in the bucket, I keep the twenty, you know, (laughs) and then I have uh, raffles of beers from my cellar, like things that are very rare and. I've been aged in a perfectly, in the perfect conditions. And, you know, people pay $10 a ticket for 100 tickets. I raise $1,000. One lucky person goes home with that, all those beers. And I sell T-shirts, you know. And I buy all the beer that I utilize for these charity events because I don't want a donation of the beer because then it's not my charity. It's the brewery's charity. So, uh, we just raised 10,000 dollars for the fair food stand and it probably cost me 4,000 to raise 10 because i had all these really rare beers on draft
0: so besides the brewers in belgium associated with religious orders you mentioned that there's a small microbrewing scene going on and has been going on what's that like is that lay people or
1: uh, well there's home brewers uh, just like there are in america but every farm had a, a brewery because, you know, it, it's, it's still hard to make a living even in Belgium, just like it is here. They, you know, it's not owned by ConAgra or something. It's a small family plot and they still use Belt and Draft horses to plow their fields. And then they, it's like, uh, let's make a, you know, we'll make beer for ourselves and then people start liking it. And then they build a little bit bigger brewery and uh, like Hoften Dormal. Which is uh, right outside of Leuven. And they make amazing beers. But the whole family, you know, the father and the two sons help make the beer. And that's it. Just those three employees. And they just make beer when they can. They don't always, I can't always get it, but when I do, I'm thrilled.
0: So is beer often in Belgium a family business? Do you encounter a lot of family businesses?
1: Yeah. Uh, brasserie DuPont, it's. Really close to the French border. And to me, that's the benchmark saison. Olivier is, I think he's fifth generation and he runs the brewery. And, you know, hopefully his sons will take over, but who knows? You know, his sister makes bread from the spent grains. And he has another relative that makes cheese. And they sometimes infuse hops in the cheese itself, hop leaves, and they brine cheese and beer. It's really, really good. Like Cantillon gets cheese from them and they brine it with Cantillon uh, straight lambic.
0: Who are some of the other people in Belgium that you've been really impressed by?
1: There are people that, new people who have gone back to the roots and I'd say Ivan de Bates has a brewery called Brasserie de la Seine and he has more books about brewing than anybody up ever seen and uh, he goes back to the rich orig- you know how they made dry beers in belgium and not sweet beers and uh, he railed against some of the producers of really sweet beers because they adapted to the coca-cola generation and they he felt they sold out so he's doing very traditional beers but now he's starting to put little twist on them you know and he's he has these really tongue-in-cheek names and labels about, you know, Belgian colonialism. It's, uh, he's, he's a genius. He really is a genius. And you have more and more people selling good beer in Belgium. Like when I went there in 84, very few people knew good beer. They were drinking the mass-produced uh, things made by Imbev. Even
0: in Belgium they were.
1: Oh, Yeah. I remember uh, Jean-Pierre Van Roy from Cantillon telling me, uh, this is probably in the early nineties, mid nineties, that he once had 400 accounts in Brussels for his beer. And uh, and then say maybe 95, he only had 40 accounts selling his beer because they wanted the sweeter lambics. They didn't want the traditionally made lambics. They don't want it with, that balance of acidity and fruit—they want it sugar pop, soda pop. So, uh, yeah, it was—it's was a struggle for a lot of these traditional brewers. But now, Cantillon is, you know, one of the holy grails, one of the white whales of beer world. People will flock. I'll give you two hundred dollars if you let me take a bottle of that away. Like you're—you're you're just going to put her on eBay, and if anybody makes money off of it, she should be the brewer. The importer and the people that uh, sell the beer you you're nowhere in that chain you know you can buy the beer and you can have it here, and it's only thirty dollars a bottle, but you're going to try to sell it for two hundred <laughs> So
0: when did you open the monk's cafe?
1: after uh, working for uh, Bill and Judy for thirteen years promoting good beer, I decided to go out and and uh, do it the way I really thought it should be done, start from scratch. Uh, So we opened in the beginning of 1997.
0: And what was it like at that time?
1: Uh, Still a hand sell operation. You know, I had to train everyone, uh, all the members, you know, all my coworkers, I had to train them about beer because it wasn't, they weren't as beer savvy as they are now. Now, uh, even before Rate Beer and Beer Advocate came out, I think Philadelphia became very very beer savvy. We have a food reviewer here in town for a Philadelphia Inquirer his name is Craig Laban. and he reviews, you know, just like Peter Wells does for the New York Times, you know, the decor, the noise, the food, the wine, but he's the only major city newspaper reviewer who talks about the beer list and he calls people out if they You know, don't spend any time on it. It's like, I think I read the word insipid about a dozen times before people said like, oh, we better put a little bit of time into finding a good beer list. So I don't think there's any other city in the country that has that.
0: So it's critic driven, it's infrastructure driven, and the price points are right.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's like the best bottle of beer now, you know, say you're going to go absolutely bonkers and spend $90 on a bottle, but, you know, you get an 82 Bordeaux, you're going to spend, you know, 2000 at a restaurant. So it's a matter of perspective. It's, it's a deal.
0: And what about bottle condition versus not bottle condition?
1: Bottle condition, some of them can lay down for 30, 40 years. Um, some of them can't. It has to do with, you know, the, the leaves that are in there and whether they're active or not. And uh, the type of closure, is it a, a crown cap, like a traditional beer bottle, if it's cork and caged like a champagne, do you lay it on its side, do you stand it up, you know, it's a cave temperature, is it cold? If it's really cold, it's not going to, you know, it'll last forever because you're not going to let it do anything. But a lot of them get you know oxidized they become Madeira like and if you're having cheese you know a good Madeira is great I like the oxidation in a Madeira but not all beer should be laid down like you're never going to lay down like a victory hop devil because the hops are going to dissipate then the color is going to change and then it's going to be undrinkable.
0: But was it somewhat of a learning curve for clientele, or was it also maybe an advantage that you didn't have to sell certain beers right away when you started to introduce bottle conditioned beers?
1: I remember when uh, I opened Monks, and we were moving along a bit, and I was starting to sell some beers at a pretty good clip, and people go like, uh, oh, you know, I liked Chimay before. It was so much better before. And then... Then I look at the uh, date on the cork. It's uh, like, well, this was bottled six months before. You know, previously I was selling beers that were in the bottle two years. So they've already had a chance to mellow out. Oh, because
0: of more business. People were coming in and cleaning you out. (laughs) Yeah. And then they were saying, "Oh, I used to like the old Chimay. (laughs) And you're like, oh, I see. It hasn't been ages long.
1: That's exactly the point. Yeah. So I started building up inventory where I could rotate through. And uh you know it's a never ending guesswork you know it's like you have to anticipate the needs of your guest, but you don't wanna have something laying around too long and uh, you know I've guessed wrong i've I laid beers down that were just god awful when uh you know when I went to taste them. I thought they were sellable, but nah, I was wrong. <laughs>
0: what have been the other learning moments in doing this? Cause I just can't imagine there were that many people in the States that you could call and be like, so how do you, you know, do this thing? <laughs> I mean, what were things where you're like, wow, oh, I wish I'd known that a week ago.
1: <laughs> well, my, my buddy Ray Dieter had a place up in Manhattan called DBA. Uh, unfortunately he passed away in a bicycle accident. And then David Keene at Toronado in San Francisco and, uh, Vern up at Brower's Cafe in Seattle, and, uh, and Chris Black in Denver at Falling Rock, you know. And by the mid seventies, we were all up and going full tilt boogie, and we all would meet, you know, like in Belgium or Denver. We we performed some formed a, a group called the PNC, the Publican National Committee. We didn't have to do it again, so we didn't have to be Republican. We were just publicans, (laughs) Um, and we just bounce ideas off of each other, and you know, we learn from each other's mistakes. You know, we're we're very forthcoming, and when somebody opens a really good bar in Philly, you know, I I lay it out for them. It's like, you know, here's where you get this, here's where you get that. Um, Don't do this (laughs) because you'll screw the pooch if you do that. The older generation needs to mentor the younger generation. And I take that seriously. That's part of the reason that three of us formed Philly Beer Week. Don Russell, who was also known as Joe Sixpack, uh, Bruce Nichols, uh, who had a catering company, and myself, we formed this thing called Philly Beer Week, which is the first beer week in the country. And now there's maybe well, well over 100 cities around the world that have copied the the model. But we wanted to promote the beer culture and diversity of Philadelphia. And, and it really did, you know, we exceeded our expectations by a mile. People are into it. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, the, the first week I remember telling Don, it's like, I'd be happy if there's 20 people who join and we have 50 events. And we had... 175 people join and we had like 300 events. (laughs) So, and, you know, and every year, you know, last year we had over a thousand events in 10 days. So it's, it's pretty cool.
0: Each restaurant or bar has an event.
1: Bar, hotels, restaurants, distributors, beer gardens, you you name it, Uh, educational components, um, You know, we, like I said, we have a beer savvy town. So you can't just say we have a tap takeover. We'll have 12 of, uh, you know, founders' beers on. Now, they're excellent beers, but I don't want to go there and just drink 12 of their beers. I I want somebody to tell me something I don't know. And uh, Philly's really gotten to the point where we have that. And Don Russell is one of those people who was, you know, he continually tries to educate people about it. And then, William Reed and Casey Parker and, you know, the new generation of people doing it. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's really cool.
0: How has the consumer changed over the time? I mean, I know waves come and go, popularity comes and goes, but have people latched on more to traditional beers in an era where they certainly do that with wine? I mean, people talk a lot about, I want traditional wines.
1: Session beers keep making a comeback, uh, like English bitters, things between three and a half and five and a half percent, where you can sit there and drink. You know, like in a stout, that's a session beer. People are under the impression that that's a strong beer because it's dark in color and full in mouthfeel because of all the nitrogen, uh, whereas it's really a light beer. And you can, that's why all these Irish guys can sit around and drink 10 pints and wander off. is not because they're alcoholics. It's because it's you know a low-alcohol beer. And I, I see more and more breweries doing session beers, and I think it's really cool. But, you know, there'll be a backlash to that at some point.
0: And it seems like uh, a lot of brewers have embraced the IPA style.
1: Yeah, I don't need the taste. I don't need another brewery making an IPA. I, you know, it just... You already have the best IPAs you can possibly get your hands on. Russian River Blind Pig, Port Brewing, uh, Wipeout IPA, Victory Hop Devil, you know, uh, Yards IPA, which is a traditional English-style IPA, so it's a little higher in alcohol. You know, there's so many really, really good ones there. And maybe as a home brewer you're really proud of yours, but please don't bring me any more IPAs. <laughs> And don't make it hoppier because that's how you're going to stand out. I don't want to shave my tongue after I have a beer. And if it's super, super hoppy and there's no balance, you know, it's, a, it's not even a one-trick pony. It's a zero-trick pony. Balance is the key to beer. You know, you don't want too much of anything. You want it, you know, if it's going to be sour, then you need another component to balance the sourness. Uh, but if it's going to be, a lot of malt, then you need enough hops to balance the sweetness. Or you attenuate it all the way. You absorb all the alcohol, you know, by uh, yeast eats it all. But Brettanomyces in there, which is the bane of winemakers, but the friend of brewers.
0: Has it helped with consumers that there are defined styles for beer that are indicated on the label? Has that made it easier to sell things because people know what they're getting?
1: The BA, the Brewers Association in Denver, creates definitions for styles, and there are so many styles now. You have, you know, Berliner Weiss, and then you have sour German wheat beers. I'm like, what would that be? You know that that was a Berliner Weiss, and they just they're so nuanced with their definitions that you know I I look at a label, I'm not really sure what it's going to be. Oh, is that true? Yeah. It's uh,
0: so it's more confusing to the the expert than the amateur because <laughs> sometimes I think I I could just order a beer because I think oh I know what a stout and a porter is and a
1: yeah as a general you know. rule it, it'll fit certain flavor parameters you know it's like if you get a you know right bank or left bank Bordeaux you know it's going to be Cabernet or Merlot dominated so you're going to know what the base you know the base of the wine is going to be. Whether or not it resembles it all the way down the line, it's probably not the case. But you have a a concept, and it's the same with beer world. You know, you can look at a label and get a general idea. But you know, now they have beers that, like Gene from Tired Hands, who's, has been blowing me away with his beers. Uh, it's right outside of Philly, and he has. The light emitting from the hole in your head, this name of a beer. Like, it's like, wow, you watch way too much David Lynch movies, way too many of those. (laughs) You know, he just comes up with these crazy names and you just have to try to to figure out what style it is. And Sean Hill up in uh, Hill Farmstead in Vermont, he's the same way. You know, here's a Dorothy, here's a Mary, here's an Edward. They're named after. His ancestors, but I don't know who Dorothy is. This doesn't tell me what she's going to, you know, what, what's in that keg. So,
0: is there an old world, new world divide with beer? You know, like when the styles are translated to domestic producers of a traditional style from Europe, do they do it a little differently?
1: Uh, well, you can buy, say, barley malt from Germany, from Wireman. So you can use real German malt to make. German style beer and you can treat water to have whatever you need. High minerality, soft, you know, what whatever you need in that water, you can treat and you can add any yeast. There are yeast banks like White Labs and Y Yeast. And you can you you can recreate a beer almost exactly if you want it to. But then why do that if somebody's already making it? So you have to add your own little twist to it.
0: So in the universe of beer places, you know, you have beer gardens, you have brew pubs, you have breweries that have a bar. Um, How should I understand amongst Monk's Cafe? I mean, what's the style?
1: It's modeled after maybe three, it's a conglomeration of three or four of my favorite places in Belgium from decor, you know, with all the old wood, like a brown cafe uh, with a lot of traditional Belgian cuisine. And it's funny because Philadelphians say, oh, the place is looking kind of dated. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because the place I emulate it is like 400 years old. So it's supposed to look a little dated. You know, I'm not going to change the decor.
0: So is the beer consumer in Philadelphia, is that a younger person? Is that an older person? Is it male? Is or female?
1: Um, there's the kids are the kids these days.
0: <laughs> Can't keep them off my lawn. <laughs>
1: Um, they're so well informed. Maybe not from taste, but from reading. Like they go, you know, like greatbeer.com or Beer Advocate, and they download the top 100 beers, and they want to taste every one of them. Now, whether or not they have a palate to appreciate it uh, is debatable. You know, some of them are really good. Some of them have no idea. Some of the kids can't identify a flaw in a beer. They think it's an attribute, and it's like if you, it smells vegetable, like DMS, you know that's not good or diacetol throughout the beer. There are some beers where diacetol is appropriate, and some most where it's not. But they they just want to check it off. We call them tickers. They tick it off their list of 100 beers they want to have, and we're a destination that has a lot of those beers. But you can't come in and order the rarest beer that we have on our lists to start with.
0: You can't just off the street not be a regular come in and say, Oh, I'll take that thing that there's only, you know,
1: two, ten bottles two, of yeah, <laughs> two
0: cases of in the state or something, right?
1: Yeah, you you gotta, you know, you get you get a good beer and then you go up and get another good beer and then then you ask, it's like, do you have any of that left? Like what do you think of it? I've read that such and such and then
0: I've heard Heineken's better here. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Oh, would you like a real beer? Yeah, so it's uh, the kids are well way more informed than they used to be. But everything's instant. they look up on their iPhone and their iPads, and you know they print out things from their laptops, or they have them there at the at the bar, and it's just you know they they do some research before they come in, and I, that's kind of cool.
0: Do you think that that has contributed to the what you refer to as the white whale culture of, of, oh, yeah. of part of beer, people trying to find certain rare beers?
1: Well, it's like when Robert Parker said, give something a, a 98 or 99 or a 100. Everybody wants that. You know, Penfolds Grange is 100. Oh, my God, I got to have that. Uh, you know, whether you're going to appreciate it or not, I don't know. You know, it's like what, what I'm in Europe, people say, Ah, you Americans, you like good wine. You just drink it way too early. (laughs) You know, we don't let it mellow out.
0: So originally, the beer culture was defined by rarity in the sense that nobody was really working with the good beers. And now it's defined by rarity in the sense that a lot of people are quite aware of some of these beers. And there's just not enough bottles to go around.
1: Exactly. And I'll use Russian River Pliny the Elder as an example. And I I get several kegs every six or eight weeks, and they they market in in, in their area. They're in Sonoma County, and they, both Vinny and Natalie, the owners, worked in wine before, and they just they're incredible brewers, just blow me away. And they're friends of mine. I've known them pretty much since they've opened the brewery, and. They're distributed in California, and then there, I think there's a couple of places in Oregon that have it, and a couple of places in Denver, and then that's it, except for Philadelphia. And I, I get a good portion, good percentage of the beer that comes in because, you know, it's here because they're my friends. And uh, I get kegs of Plenty the Elder, and if I list that it's on deck for later on, people call all day long. Is the Pliny on yet? Is Pliny on yet? What time do you think it's going to be on? Uh, You know what what's on right before that? You know how much of that is left? Should we come in and help kick that keg so we can have some Pliny? And it's just they just go crazy for that beer, and it's a really well made beer, but uh, if you've never had it, I would imagine it's a uh, you know it's the White Well. It's a goal for people to have, and. You know, if, as long as it's, it's a good beer and it's readily available, cool. If it's super rare, bad.
0: <laughs> and where do you think the beer culture might go in the next few years?
1: I well, sour beers are the biggest thing right now, and uh, God, I just remember spending 20 years trying to sell, hand sell sour beer. Like, no, it's supposed to taste this way. And think of this as a lemonade, and in the summertime, it's a thirst quencher. You know, and people, you know, now everybody covets these beers. I think the next, what I would like to see, but I I truly believe it's going to be, is uh, different types of smoked malt and different degrees of smoked malt, like beechwood, applewood, pearwood, you know, old scotch barrels like brudelottic, which are heavily peated and then peat smoked. And just different percentages and different beers, just to see uh how that works. I think that's gonna be a that's a huge area. you know I've brewed a couple of smoked beers, and people are like, "I can barely detect the smoke you know the think the phenols are so subtle um but that's what I want. you know, I just want a little little hint, so I've been playing around at home with different smoky beers, and I think you know, when I go around and brew with other people, that's going to be my goal is to brew smoky. I might get one of those super smoked beers, too. I don't know.
0: Has doing more brewing work affected how you buy beer? <clears throat> Has it affected what your taste is for when you buy?
1: Um, I think my palate. you know, I've always appreciated it. I, I didn't have the lexicon to explain what, what I was tasting, which is something that Michael Jackson gave all of us lexicon to describe beer he was the first person to, to do that yeah i think my palate's always been sensitive and you know i can t- when i was a kid i could taste cilantro It's like, like oh, there's cilantro in this you know
0: tom peters is a detective of beer and he's created a home for belgium in philadelphia thank you very much for being here today
1: levy it was my pleasure i really enjoyed the uh, conversation